Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is out with some important updates to its cybersecurity framework. The CSF 2.0, as it's called, doesn't make major changes to cybersecurity best practices themselves. Rather, NIST officials say the updates are all about helping organizations understand and actually use the framework. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And what are the top changes in the cybersecurity framework, which everybody loves to read? Everybody loves to read the framework. It's a 10-year-old document, and CSF 2.0 retains the five core functions that anyone who is familiar with it would know. Identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Those are kind of the big buckets of cybersecurity, according to the framework, which a lot of organizations use. Federal agencies are required to use them. One of the big changes, though, in this 2.0 document is the addition of a govern function. Governance is a big emphasis for the CSF 2.0. It's aimed at making sure senior leaders in an organization account for cybersecurity risks the same way they would for financial or legal or reputational concerns. NIST Director Lori Ocasio unveiled the CSF 2.0 during an event at the Aspen Institute on Monday, and she spoke a little bit about the addition of this govern function. Govern really represents the fact that we have to bring this into the boardroom for discussion, right? It's recognized now that cyber is an important enterprise risk. That discussion initially did happen 10 years ago. We really weren't ready yet to, to incorporate it. There weren't best practices for how or what that meant. And so it did take this next evolution of the cybersecurity framework to really get here. And I guess she spoke about some of the bigger changes in technology policy government-wide that NIST people felt were driving the need for governance or people told NIST that they need to add governance in there. Yeah, NIST uh, received a lot of feedback on how there are just this really emerging set of cybersecurity requirements and regulations coming out across all sorts of different sectors And the new framework's governance section kind of addresses those issues around roles and responsibilities, policies, and oversight that a lot of folks might wonder about when they see these requirements coming down the pipeline, depending on if you're in critical infrastructure, if you're a federal agency, obviously, or a contractor. There's just a lot of cyber requirements out there. Sherilyn Pascoe, director of NIST's National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, pointed out that the CSF itself, the framework, is used as a baseline for many of these regulations. One thing that we heard quite a bit from those that submitted comments is the need to kind of harmonize this growing suite of cybersecurity regulations around the CSF. We talk about the CSF being voluntary, but we're continually seeing it, increasingly seeing it mentioned in regulations, in federal grants, in different incentive programs, and in state legislation. So the landscape around the CSF is changing as well. And what else is new outside of the governance, Justin, in the CSF 2.0? Yeah, the big thing NIST added is a lot around actual implementation examples. So the framework itself, if you read it, is very technology agnostic. It doesn't get into a lot of specific use cases, but what NIST added here is specific examples for small businesses, Uh, mapping tools so you can kind of connect the cybersecurity framework to other sorts of requirements and frameworks, and even quick start guides and community profiles for different communities that might use the cyber framework, like 
the space industry, electric vehicles, uh, the natural gas industry, things like that. The other big thing to mention is that there's also a new focus on cyber supply chain risk management. That's something federal agencies and federal contractors will be really familiar with in 2024. It talks about how, you know, organizations should know who their suppliers are, should prioritize them and do their due diligence. Sure. So that's another big element of this renewed framework. And the other big thing on the scene, of course, is artificial intelligence and the cybersecurity framework has to apply to that too, I suppose, right? That's right. The framework is actually, or the AI risk management framework that NIST has directly references the cybersecurity framework. And you hear a lot of conversation around AI safety and security. And of course, cybersecurity is a big piece of that conversation. Lacazio says that the goal for NIST is that all these different public Applications that they put out there actually kind of tie together because organizations at different points are going to navigate cybersecurity issues, privacy issues, AI issues, and they all have to be kind of interconnected uh, according to what NIST is putting out there. And at the top, we said that NIST changes to the framework include helping organizations actually make use of it. And tell us more about that one. Yeah, NIST's uh, Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, which is really kind of the focal point for the framework itself, is really now focusing on helping organizations with those use cases they've put out there, helping different communities come in and build community profiles. Uh, Pasco says the center is actually working with 24 technology vendors to build different examples of a zero trust security architecture. And that work actually connects to the CSF as well. As part of that work, we're mapping the ZTA principles as well as the security characteristics of each of those products back to the CSF. So you can see how kind of the higher level outcomes that are found in CSF subcategories can be mapped back to kind of security capabilities that are found in products and services that you may acquire. I think that's really powerful to show really in real life how an organization might use the CSF. That's Sherilyn Pasco, director of NIST's Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. She might have the best diction of anybody in government, I would say there. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.